Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. I'm already in the vein, okay? I was going to show a video that's going to uh, start off our new series, but honestly, I just totally forgot about it. But you know what? It really isn't going to make or break what we say here today, whether that's played or not. Psalms chapter 95 and verse number 6, one verse of Scripture. We are starting a series in this month called the Heart of Worship series. And this morning, I'm going to be talking to you about the attitude of worship, the attitude of worship. And we're going to just use this one verse of scripture as our place of origin this morning. David says in the Psalms, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. And let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. And so we're going to encourage this month. We're going to encourage worship this month. And, uh, and we, we've, we've talked along these lines, of course, before. Uh, but there is a dynamic difference between praise and worship. Uh, it is quite possible to come to a church house and praise the whole time you're there and have never worshipped. And so we want to talk about the attitude of worship today. I know we've been doing, it seems like, a lot of praying here this morning. You say, man, they, they start out church with prayer and they pray for the sick and then they pray and they... That's all right. He said, let my house be a house of prayer. So let's ask God's help here in the next few moments. Father, I love you today. I pray, oh, Lord, let our minds, God, be focused upon you. God, as we consider, Lord, this series, the heart of worship, Lord, and particularly today, the attitude of worship this morning. God, we're grateful for everybody here, God. and We want to be participants, God, in that, that, that aspect, Lord God, of worship in the house of the Lord today. And we'll not fail to thank you, Lord, for what you accomplish in this place. In the lovely name of Jesus Christ that I pray pray amen and amen and can this precious church say amen amen you may be seated this morning the lovely name of the lord hallelujah i'll share something with you before we get started if you've ever noticed me that whenever i talk to you all that sometimes it seems like i'm looking right above your head it's because that's exactly what i'm doing Uh, We were at conference this past year, and I was just walking down through a foyer or a hallway in NYC, and I had a lady that stopped me and says, Pastor McGee, why is it whenever you preach, you seem to be looking above people? She said, I've seen other preachers do the exact same thing. I said, well, I said, you're exactly right. I usually do. I said, it's because sometimes faces distract me more than looking at them would. So if I look at them, that distracts me more than if I wouldn't. And so it's nothing personal. It's just just something I that's my problem, you know, and that's just my way of trying to deal with it. Amen. Psalms 95, 6. Oh, come and let us worship and bow down and let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Now, the psalmist David in Psalms 95 here to understand a little bit of the background and how meaningful this was of what he is asking or admonishing the people, the nation of Israel to do Um the setting of Psalms 95 is, is on, 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 on this path, and that is the temple at Jerusalem has just been restored. It had been years, dilapidated years, torn apart and in ruins, and it has just been restored. And so as a result of that, Israel had been without a formal place 
to worship for several, several years, particularly during their 70 years in captivity, 70 years in exile. They were separated from this place. And so when its doors are swinging open again for uh, the nation to enter into its courts and trample uh, the floor again, the psalmist is uh, asking the people and inviting them to come. You'll read in the first five verses, he's inviting them to come and praise the Lord, acknowledge the Lord. Uh, but then he turns in verse number six and he wants them to come and worship the Lord. And greatly because for 70 years they have been removed from a formal place of worship. Not only that, and I'm, I'm not telling you, I'm not telling you that the only place you can praise God or worship God is in a church house. But I'm saying the church house should be one of the places that you praise and worship the Lord. So I'm not saying you can't do uh, any type of worship or praise unto the Lord in your home. Yes, you can. But, but the Lord has asked of us and required of us in Scripture, even from the Old Testament forward, to have times in which we gather together as the collective body. Uh, Brother Mason spoke about this not long ago, being connected to the church as a collective body to give worship and praise unto the Lord. For that matter, uh, the Bible says that whenever we do this, then we're able to comfort one another. We're able to strengthen one another. Now, we view Scripture oftentimes through the modern-day lens. Say, Brother, Brother McGee, I can do that on social media. I can do that by phone call. Well, let's think about when all this was written, when there wasn't social media and there wasn't a phone call. So what do you think the Lord was relaying to? He was relaying to the people coming together as a congregation at a location for the purpose then of being able to comfort and encourage one another. And so we do the same today. But this verse, verse 6, does very well about really defining what, defining what worship is. And that is, he says, come let us worship and bow down. Because that, in essence, is, is part and parcel of the meaning of worship. It is the bowing down. It is the kneeling in homage. Almost, almost uh, universal across our land today. Uh, bowing is a, is a sense of humility and giving respect and honor to whomever you are bowing to. And so worship, in its truest sense, is nothing more but that. It is giving reverence. Amen. To someone that you put stock in as a superior and you're an inferior. Something that is a master and a Lord and you are a servant. That in reality is worship. Worship isn't necessarily what we say with our lips. It's not about a hallelujah or a hand raise. That's, that's really not what it's about. It's about what we say with our hearts. It's about reverence. It's about respect unto the Lord, namely the Lord, the maker, the creator of the universe. And so it's important whenever we talk about praise and we talk about worship to keep the distinctives in mind, to keep them straight. We praise God. If you've never heard me say this, here you go. This is solo flight today. We praise God for what he has done for us. God healed my body. I praise you for it. God uh, had finances in the bank in order for me to have food on the table. I praise him for it. I praise God for the things that he has done. But we worship God. We revere him. We're in awe and wonder of him because of who he is. In other words, if God even never did anything for us, we would still have every reason to worship him just because of who he is. He's God and all the attributes that that are, are lined up in the list for God. God is love. That's enough to worship. God is holy. As I start out our service this morning, that is enough uh, to cause or uh, to, to, to somehow provoke worship in our lives because we worship him for who he is. The thing about praise, you know it. 
blessings in what God does from day to day. And the Bible tells us that he loadeth us down daily with blessings. But nevertheless, blessings, those things are momentarily. They're momentary. They, they, they happen and then they are gone. Praise is tied into something that is momentary. But worship is tied to and deals with something that never changes. Blessings come, blessings go. There's certain, you know, seasons of life and times of year you might feel like you're more blessed that God has done more uh, for you at certain times than he has at other times. But there's one thing for sure. When we talk about worship, praise may go with the dynamics of the blessings, but worship is tied to something eternal. It's tied to God, his attributes, his nature, and that never changes. So with that in mind then then I should be able to have a pretty good, uh, plateaus the wrong word, but a pretty good even worship life because my object of worship is something that never alters, something that never changes. Amen. And I want to be just as much in awe and in wonder of God today as I was the first time I was introduced to God. The first time I bent my knee humbly at an altar of prayer and I realized there was a God that could remit my sins and that he went to the cross and he died all these things that he'd done but the fact that he was God and because he was God he was capable then of doing all those things. The Bible says in Matthew 15 and verse number 8 and 9 Matthew 15 has a story within it that we're going to get to here in just a moment of a woman that came to the Lord asking for uh, the deliverance of her child that was vexed of the devil, the Bible says. But prior to getting there, oftentimes in, in the books of the Bible and the chapters, you'll start to find that there is a theme in a chapter before it, it, it ever just totally pulls back the curtain on it. And that's what we see in verses 8 and 9. Uh, the, the Lord is speaking uh, to a people. The Pharisees have come to the Lord, and they're kind of a little upset. Uh, because the disciples, they said they, they ate with unwashed hands. And according to their tradition, they were supposed to wash their hands before they eat. And I know we try to practice good hygiene around here too. Uh, but they were doing that. And the Lord, though, was looking at them and basically told them, well, there's some of the commands of God that you all have been delinquent in. And he says, you, you've, put more, you've put more stock in the tradition of men than you have the commandments of God. And so this is, as he's talking to them, this is what he says to them in verse 8. He says, this people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Verse 9, he says, but in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. And so here he is addressing these Pharisees that have attacked his disciples for not keeping a particular tradition of man. But then the Lord, he is so, uh, I'm just, here, here I am, I'm just wowed of God. He, he, he takes this conversation and he turns it toward worship. And he basically tells them this, that, that worship, because he says, you've drawn near to me with your mouth, with your lips. He said, but worship isn't about what you say. It's about the attitude of the heart. He says, but your heart is far from me their heart was far from God and therefore he calls their worship vain worship amen they had lip service but not heart service and in verse 7 he has the audacity to even say this this is strong this is the Lord I know we, we don't want to look at this aspect of the Lord sometimes but he says ye here it comes hypocrites 
That's the Lord. He said, ye hypocrites. And the reason why Jesus considered them to be hypocrites is because what they did with their lips, their praise, what they did with their lips and their mouths, their praise, did not mirror what they did in their worship. Amen. Did not mirror what they did, what they did with their worship. And so I ask you this morning, let's consider this for a moment. How could they, think with me, how could they praise God for what he did and not worship him for who he was? How could they praise him for what he did but not worship him for who he was? Because when you come down to the brass tacks of it, the things that God does, those things that he, he, he's active in and he does for us, is a byproduct of who he is. He heals because he's the healer. He saves because he's the savior. He delivers because he's the deliverer. How could I, how could I praise God for healing and praise God for deliverance and not be all and in wonder and reverence for him being the savior and the healer? Because anything that I get from God is a result of who he is. Someone say amen. And so he goes on. He says, your worship then is vain. He said, your worship then is in vain. He said, teaching for doctrines of the commandments of men. He said, your worship is in vain. And he says, look at your doctrine. Now, doctrine is basically this. Everybody will say all kinds of things, but in its simplest, most simple form and mode, doctrine is what is taught. That's what it means. What is taught. Let me say this this morning. Our doctrine reveals a lot about our worship. Just kind of ease into this. Our doctrine reveals a lot about our worship or at least the object of our worship. Because the object of our teaching or our doctrine should match the object of our worship. Mm -hmm. God-centered worship should be supported by God-centered doctrine. Someone say amen. Some worship services, and I may have been in a few of them, or I've at least spied on some of them. Some worship services lack in power because their doctrine does not support their worship. Okay. Let me break it down like this. Some people may be in awe and wonder, amen, of, of God, but their doctrine does not support the God of their worship. If you have an impure doctrine, let me say it like this. And I don't want anybody to get off here in left field. But there are some organizations, there are some churches that I believe truly are worshiping God and trying to worship God. But since their doctrine is incorrect, it's not according to the word. It's not repentance. Jesus named baptism. It's not one God, the almighty God in Christ. Then there's a breakdown. There, there is a breakdown between the doctrine and the worship, and as a result of it, it influences and has an impact on their worship. Amen. Doctrine and worship, the object of them both should match. Now look, let's go to Matthew 15 and verse 21. I want to read this story then that Jesus gets to. He's already setting things up a little bit because he has turned the corner talking about their worship. And look at verse 21. This story in reality has to do a lot with worship the bible says then jesus went thence and departed into the coast of tyre and sidon 
And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with a devil. But he answered her, Not a word. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. But he answered and said, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, Is it not meet or suitable to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs? And she said, Truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. So this is quite the story. Here is a woman that is from the land of Canaan. That being said, she is, she is a pagan. She is not a Jew. She is someone uh, that, that, that is an outsider, if you will. She approaches the Lord with a need because her daughter is grievously vexed, as the scripture terms it, with the devil. She asks the Lord uh, to do something for her concerning this problem. He does nothing. He tells her his priority is the Jews. She comes to him and she worships and she asks for help and he seems to emphasize that a little bit more. But before it's all said and done, he's calling this woman's faith great and he's granting to her exactly what she has requested. So that's interesting. When we look at verse number 23, this Canaanite woman approaches the Lord with her problem. But here's something that probably really shoots some of us kind of back a few steps. He doesn't even respond. She has a problem, she presents it to him, and he doesn't even respond. Then his disciples come, and and they want him to send this Canaanite woman, send her away, because she's already brought her problem to us as well, and so, Lord, just go on and send her away. But when you come to verse number 24, look at it now. comes to verse 24, he tells them, and he answers and says that his original purpose, or at least his priority, was the Jews. It was the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That, that's been my priority. That's been my focus, the Jews. Well, when you read then in verse number 25, things, things, the dynamics change. Now she doesn't just come to the Lord with her problem, but she comes to the Lord and worships while asking for help. Huh? See, before the problem was out front as she went to his presence. But now her worship is leading and her problem is following. She comes before the Lord with worship now asking for help. And verse 26 basically says he restates his priority. My priority is the loss of the sheep of Israel. Can I take the children's bread that is, that, that is meat and suitable for them and, and give it to, to dogs or people that are, is an outsider? Can I do that? So he restates his priority. But then look at verse 27. And she said, truth, Lord, let the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. She says, truth, Lord. Look what she's about ready to say. The dogs eat the crumbs that fall from there. Everybody notice the word master's table. You know what she's saying in this moment? Look at it with me. She's saying, truth, Lord, it isn't about me. Huh? Truth, Lord, it isn't about me. It's about who you are. Because she acknowledged him as master, as a person of authority. As a superior, she said, that's all right. I'll accept the place of the dog, and I'll let you be the master. It's not about me. It's about who you are, and I recognize you as a master, and so I'm reverent. 
I've entered in the second time not pushing my problem before me, but I'm coming in with worship and then just asking about my problem. <laughs> and so since this woman, this is where I believe the dynamic of this whole story changes. Since this woman assumed the second time the posture of worship and kept that worship attitude as her attitude, the Bible says then when the story is ended, her problem has been dealt with because her second approach was leading with worship. Folks, can I tell you today, we, we, we need to be admonished by this story to do what she has done. That we need to worship when heaven is silent. We need to worship when we have no response concerning our problems. We need to worship while we're waiting. When life worsens, we need to worship. Because sometimes worship, if it's preceded with worship, God will deal with the problem. Amen. All time, I'm guilty as anybody all times leading with my problem. I need to learn an attitude of worship that I can lead with worship and then let my problem follow in behind that. See, he answered her not a word when she led with her problem. Didn't even give her a response. Whenever he talked about his priority being the Jews, he was talking to the disciples whenever they came. He didn't give her even a response. She and her problem then wasn't going to be given any attention it seemed. But an attitude of worship changed that. <laughs> so I, I, I ask us today or even, you know, give advice this morning. Maybe we should seek the Lord with worship rather than with our problems. Because when we seek him with our problems, watch me here. When we seek him with our problems... We're wanting God to do something for us. Right? Right? We want God to do something for us. But when we approach him with worship, <laughs> we're esteeming him above what he can do. Woo! I approach God with worship. And I'm saying I'm the dog and you're the master. It's not about me. It's about you. It's not about my problems. It's about you being holy. Then I start to esteem him above what he can do. I place priority. I'm not just in this for what God can do for me. I'm just in this because of who he is. And I'm esteeming him above any healing he's ever going to give me. I'm esteeming him above any salvation he could ever extend me. He's God. Amen. It's attitude. Of worship. So Jesus, he was adamant. The priority was, was the Jews. But that consistent, persistent attitude of worship made this woman, and particularly her problem, her dilemma, became a top priority. In so much that he said her response finally to her in verse 28 was this. And this is awesome for someone that couldn't get a response in the beginning. He says, be it unto thee even as thou wilt. What changed? Worship. The problem didn't change. The problem's still there. But what was changed was her attitude of worship. Matter of fact, and he tells her and he says, great is thy faith. It's only other one other time in scripture where Jesus called a person's faith great. But this woman stands among those two times that was ever mentioned. She is one of them. We ask ourselves the question, what, I mean, what was so great? What, what, what great faith did this woman illustrate what what this great faith that this woman had i think in one term we must again define faith again according to scripture 
as the Hebrews 11 great faith chapter says in verse number one, he said, now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Great faith. Faith is the substance. Faith is the evidence huh, of things hoped for, things not seen. This is then how I define faith then coming from that for our purposes this morning. Faith is believing in God and what God can do when he's doing nothing. Or to say it another way, faith is believing in God and what he can do when nothing is being done. See, this woman here, what's she doing? She's exercising her faith. First of all, she brings her problem to God, evidently to Jesus, because he believes, she believes he can do something about it. But whenever he wasn't doing anything about it, not even responding to her, she said, I'm still going to the mode of worship of believing in him for who he is. Amen. That was great faith because nothing was taking place at the moment, but she wasn't being moved from her stance of bowing down and worship and playing respect and homage to the God who could huh? it's kind of like the three Hebrew boys that says whether our God deliver us we know not but we know that he is able and we're not we're not careful to answer the O king they still went to the fire they were still bound and the fire still went what is that they believed in a God when nothing was taking place they believed in God all by himself when nothing was being done for them kept the right attitude of worship. Amen. <laughs> Fact of the matter is, man, God can do whatever God wants to do. He's sovereign. He's all powerful. Sometimes, you know, it's kind of like we're approaching and God has other priorities except us, it seems like sometimes. You know, he's attending to that. Well, attend to me, God. It's having faith, still just believing in the integrity and the character of what you know your God to be. So this lady, this lady, this very same lady, She's called, there's the harmony of the Gospels. This story is uh, in other places besides Matthew. It's also found in Mark 7. But uh, she's called the Syrophoenician woman. The Syrophoenician woman. See, she was in the coast here of Tyre and Sidon. But Tyre belonged to an ancient Phoenicia, which was known to ancient Phoenicia. And the most prominent woman from ancient Phoenicia in the Old Testament, this is interesting to me, was the wicked Jezebel. She was the most prominent woman from that area. And so you can only imagine, because Jezebel, she cast a large shadow over the people that she came from and what her roots were in so much. You could only imagine the label and the stigma that anyone would have had from Jezebel's day forward that they would have carried if they were from the same place of Phoenicia, Although it was long ago, it was very dark, it was a very negative connotation, and yet this woman is the Syrophoenician woman. And we ask ourselves then concerning that, man, was it fair to have such a stigma from the past upon her? Was it, was it fair? Man, this, this for sure could not have been fair. Did this woman constantly perhaps live under a dark shadow in a place which Jezebel had come from? Probably, maybe. Could she have been judged and discriminated against, the Syrophoenician woman? Quite possibly. 
Could it have been enough to isolate her and confine her in her house of insecurities? Because, man, we got this history and past around this area. Absolutely. There's cultural pressures that are there that no doubt she is dealing with. Inferiority, perhaps even complex. All of those things are there. But here's the question. Did those obstacles for this lady, this Syrophoenician woman, did those obstacles stop her from worship? No. My wife just last week quoted uh, Brother Pastor, Pastor uh, Reinhardt. He has said this sometimes on our prison trips. He has talked about and stood up among those ladies and talked to them about the man of Gadara that had all these devils. The Bible says many devils in him. As a matter of fact, when the Lord addressed him and said, what is your name? He said, my name is Legion. The word Legion is an old military army term, which means 3,000 to 6,000 people of a regimented army. We're not just talking about a gathering of 300 to 6,000 people because that can be chaos. We're talking about a regimented army. 3,000 to 6,000 people. He says, so here is this, this, this man of Gadara. He has all these many devils in him. The Bible says he had, they would bind him with chains and he would break them asunder and that he would cut himself and all these things. But whenever Jesus stepped on the shore of Gadara, the Bible says that man that was filled with all those several devils ran to Jesus and worshipped him. Because your circumstances and a whole army of devils cannot keep you from worshiping the Lord. Because worship isn't about you. Worship is about him. It doesn't matter what your background has been. It doesn't matter the stigma, the past, the woes. It's not about you. It's about him. So anybody can worship if they get the right perspective of who he is. Nothing can stop you from worshiping. <laughs> because true worship, again, isn't about us. It's about him. It's about who he is. It's not about where you've been or what your life has been. It's about who he is, and that hasn't changed. That's not altered. Remember the woman's problem that she didn't get a response on at first? Remember the woman's problem? Follow me here. Her daughter was grievously vexed with a devil. It's interesting. In other words, her daughter is the picture of someone who has given their total allegiance and worship to the devil. And what the woman is asking for, Lord, come in and dethrone the devil. Come in and cast him out. Follow real close to me with me here right now. That was her problem I'll tell you this morning it is my personal belief that most problems that we have can be traced to a worship problem most problems we have can be traced to a worship problem who we have on the throne in our life who we revere and respect as the object of our affection in our life because it, we, we have valued and we've made, if we value and made something the object of our, of our awe and of our wonder and of our respect, whenever whatever it is that we have valued, as a result, problems will start to branch out of an improper object of worship. The story, I think, is very revealing in this sense. A problem, her, her daughter's grievously vexed of a devil, a problem that stemmed from improper worship was cured by a proper attitude of worship. 
Maybe it wasn't her own, but her mother who, who seen this need over here, daughter kind of wrapped up in this. And however she got into that undoubtedly was then an improper object of worship because she's filled with devils now. But now because a mother had a proper attitude of worship, it corrected or if you will, turned the situation around of improper worship. I wonder today, and I don't have no statistics for you, but I wonder how many problems we have would truly be solved if we just get our worship on point. Amen. The Bible says in Matthew 2, verse number 1. Matthew 2, verse number 1. I know we're already past the season of, of Christmas, but God's word is valid and relevant for every season of the year. Matthew 2 and verse 1. Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. So we have these wise men coming from the east to Jerusalem. Some call them the Magi. Nevertheless, they are the wise men. We don't know how many of them there are I know people traditionally like to say three because of the goats frankincense and myrrh but scripture doesn't tell us how many of them came but these are these wise men that have traveled from the east to Jerusalem uh, being that they were from the east it's more than likely that they are heathens they are pagans they are not of, of the Jewish descendancy or of that tree and yet the Bible tells us their primary purpose for traveling and, and, and possibly traveling hundreds of miles I've read anywhere between four to six hundred miles that this journey could have taken them the primary purpose for traveling was as they spoke was to worship Jesus they're not in the family line of the Jews no but they they felt a compelling if you will I think that probably proves them wise men more than anything suffice to say that wise men know to worship the Lord they travel four to six hundred miles to do this very thing. Now, watch this. They've traveled all that distance. Our attitude of worship at times is known by what links we go to for worship. All right? In the Old Testament book of Genesis 22, Abraham is ready, maybe somewhat hesitantly, but he is ready to be obedient, travel up Mount Moriah, and sacrifice, as the Bible describes, his only begotten son there on top of that mount. And as he tells the servants at the base of the mount as they go, he says, we go to worship. In other words, here is Abraham. He's willing to sacrifice what he loved. It's his only son. I mean, this is the Abraham that God said your descendants are going to be many, going to be as the stars of the sky, the sands along the seashore. He's only got one son. Now, how do you think all that promise is going to come to fruition? Huh? 
It's your only son. This is, and he's waited years even for this to come to fruition of him having the son. They doubted. They, they, you know, uh, his wife gave him Hagar as a handmaid. He had a son out of that, but that wasn't the promised child. So they've already had a, a little difficulty with waiting on this thing to come anyway. And so here is his son now that he has, his only son. He's going to slay it on a mountain. And he says, that's what I'm calling worship. But what Abraham was willing, Abraham was willing to sacrifice what he loved the most for what he loved more God when you can sacrifice what you love the most for what you love more let me say it like this that's what we call worship that's what we call worship because worship is about what we are willing to surrender to another the respect the honor the glory the getting outside of ourselves right because in the New Testament not New Testament rather in the beginning of time we have two boys coming from Adam and Eve. Abel, the Bible says, he is a, he is a keeper of the, of the flocks. The Bible describes him as a keeper of sheep. And the Bible says that he was going to give an offering unto the Lord. And so that he surrendered, if I can state it like that, he surrendered the firstling of his flock or the firstborn of his flock and the fat thereof. There was another son then by the name of Cain. Bible says that Cain was a tiller of the ground and that he surrendered the fruit of the ground. Now, there's nothing wrong in these respects. I mean, here's Abel after flocks. It seems to be notable that he would bring something of the flock to the Lord. Here is Cain. He's one after the ground. It would seem, you know, uh, acceptable that he's bringing the fruit of the ground. But here's the difference. Abel brought the first lean or the firstborn of his flock. And the Bible says Cain just brought the fruit. It doesn't say first fruit. And there are places in Scripture that the Bible often talks about first fruits. It doesn't say that he brought the first fruit of the ground, but he just brought the fruit of the ground. And yet the Bible tells us then, Cain offering not first fruits, but just the fruit of the ground. Abel offering the firstling of his flock. It's in then Cain and Abel that we really see that the entire world and the entire Scripture starts to force the human race to choose two attitudes of worship. One, sacrificial worship, Abel. Another, selfish worship, Cain. Because sacrificial worship, the attitude that sacrificial worship has is this. I'm here for the kingdom of God. I'm here for everything that God wants, and I commit my best to the kingdom and to God for his use and for his purpose. Selfish worship says this. The kingdom of God and everything that he has is here for me. And it must give me its best in order to keep me happy. <laughs> Two attitudes of worship. Sacrificial wor worship or selfish worship. Now let's go back to our wise men there. We have them wandering there, you know, going to Jerusalem. Didn't mean to leave them there. But <laughs> the wise men, they asked Herod and others. This king that is born, well, where is this king? Where is this location? Where is this place? Herod even has to do some research with some of the men of his court and his entourage to find out the information from them. And when he finds it out, he sends the wise men to Bethlehem with this statement in verse number 8 of Matthew 2. He says, when you have found him, when you have found the child, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. Jerusalem is six miles from Bethlehem. 
Let's say it like this. Jerusalem is six miles from Bethlehem. Here's Herod over here. These wise men have traveled four to six hundred miles. And then to Bethlehem. Herod is saying to them, go on when you find him. Tell me I want to come and worship too. He wasn't even willing to make the six mile trip. He's sending people that's already been on the 400 to 600 mile journey to make that other six. He's not even willing to go the six mile trip himself. So I'm asking you today, who do you think was really interested in worshiping? He he sends them, the Bible says he sent them to go and to search diligently. I believe Herod had some impure motives. We know it to be true according to the word of God. He wanted to know where the child was so that he could kill the child rather than worship the child. Right? That's what the Bible says. He wanted to kill the child rather than worship worship the child. Can I tell you today that worshiping God is not random? Worshiping God is not aimless. Worship takes a direction, if you will, and it results in a change. Worship is not, I've already said today, a style of music. Worship is not a certain social status. Worship is not rubbing shoulders with someone who can advance your personal agenda or your personal kingdom. In fact, true worship will destroy every personal kingdom. Now watch me here. This king, this is what they were calling it, the king that was born in Bethlehem. The born king in Bethlehem. Listen to me now. Was a threat to Herod as king. Hear me? The king that was born in Bethlehem was a threat to Herod as king. In other words, Herod wasn't going to travel six miles to Bethlehem and worship this king because doing so would meant that he claimed him to be a superior to himself. In other words, Herod couldn't, couldn't be king and worship a king. Can I tell you something great about worship? Worship keeps us from being the king in our own lives. Worship keeps us from being the king in our own lives. When I bow down in awe and wonder to the king of kings, it keeps me in a place of humility. It makes me find where my place truly is and where his place truly is at. Worship threatens misplaced importance on myself. Amen. Matthew 2.11, look at it now. Here they come. They sought diligently. They've traveled, you know, six miles. After 600 miles, what's six miles, you know? And they, and they enter into the house. The Bible says, verse 11 in Matthew 2, and when they were coming to the house, they saw the young child. All right? This is not a babe just in swaddling clothes. This is someone that has grown somewhat. And from our understanding of Herod having all those that were two years old and younger uh, killed, probably then somewhere around the age of two or they're a little bit under. He came, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, look at it now, and fell down and worshiped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So when they saw the child, they fell down and worshiped. Now, worship is an act of humility. The bowing down, the, the, the prostrating oneself. It's an act of humility. But worship also does this. Worship displays that there isn't anything too good for God. Because when they worshiped 
their treasures opened up. When they worshipped, their treasures opened up. And they bore gifts unto him. When we express the attitude of worship, our treasures open up. And gifts are given. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh are gifts that were that you can study historically that were fit for a king. <laughs> worship does that to us. If you'll stand with me this morning, I want the right attitude. I want the right attitude of worship in my life unto the Lord. There is a there is a song that we have song and do sing around here from time to time it is called the heart of worship which so happens to be the title of our series this month the heart of worship it's entitled the heart of worship and it was written by matt redman he has written a lot of worshipful songs but the, the the some of the lyrics of the heart of worship that most of you may be acquainted with is when the music fades and all is stripped away and i simply come Longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your heart. The backstory to the song, The Heart of Worship, is this is in the late 1990s, the preaching pastor at Matt Redman's church in Watford, England, since that, in that congregation, in that church, that their worship gatherings were going flat spiritually. That the congregation had come to a place that they were just going through the motions. That worship truly wasn't flowing from their heart like they, it needed to flow. That their attitude of worship, so to speak, was off kelter. Matt Redman says there was a dynamic, he said, missing. He said, so our pastor did a pretty brave thing. Said he decided to get rid of the sound system and the band for a season. And we gathered the church then for those services with just our voices. His point was is that we had lost our way in worship. And the way to get back to the heart of worship was to strip everything else away. But who was supposed to be worshipped? He said during this season, he said the pastor challenged our congregation to be participants in worship, not consumers in worship. He asked us to come together and engage with God for ourselves from our heart, not just to watch with our eyes or to pick up on what other people were doing, but he wanted us to come as worshipers, not as concert goers, not as being entertained with a band and a sound system. He said all those things were gone. He said it will forever be an unforgettable time in the life of our church as we would come together service after service, no drums and no piano, but just voices a cappella, a cappella singing to their creator. Matt Raymond says this, and I close with this. He said, before long, he said, we reintroduced the musicians and the sound system. He said, but we had gained a new perspective that it's all about him. It's all about you, Jesus and that it commanded a response at the depths of our soul that no matter what the circumstances of our settings would be, music or no music, high tide, low tide, that it was all, worship was all about him. That song today describes it. When everything is stripped away, when the music fades, 
when what I bring then in that moment is just that of worth of my heart. You're who you are. It's all about you. Can we bow our heads in this place today? Brother Mason is going to sing that song this morning. I'm asking people this morning to reconnect with a right attitude of worship. It's about him, folks. It's about him. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about any other peripheral thing that may be going on in our lives. Worship is about the Lord. Worship is about the Lord. Not to bow or humble ourselves in, our, in, in his presence. That isn't hurting anybody. It's not hurting anybody, but perhaps the one who's not bowing. And that is also, to some degree, impacting the Lord. It's impacting him. Yeah, because the Bible says the Father seek of true worshipers to worship him in spirit and truth. You know, the only thing that we ever see that God ever sought for was for a true worshiper. I'm asking, will someone fill that void today? Someone fill that void today. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you and have a blessed day.